0: And welcome to Against the Law, the ancient history podcast that aims to separate fact from fiction. You're joining us for the last episode in this trilogy of That's Entertainment. And in this episode, we're going to look at the bigger picture and the smaller pictures too. So here's the usual collective. Joining us from Oman today, Senya is excited to paint us a picture on the ancient Romans. Meg is going to be brushing on topics from the ancient Greeks. And Barney has canvassed his way across the ancient Near East to bring us a variety of fun facts. I'm Flo, and my knowledge of the ancient world is sketchy at best, but I'm excited to get learning with you, our listener, about the ancient world of art. Barney, I'm going to pick on you first because I never pick on you first, and I think you've escaped it for too long. Um, we nowadays we think of art as something that we can all enjoy. It's 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 something that everybody likes. We've we've all got it in our homes. We go and see it in museums. We can browse for it online. Art is very sort of entertainment public facing thing has it always been that way
1: thanks flo uh yeah i think it's interesting to consider exactly how historians and archaeologists might use uh the word art maybe in a similar way to how they use literature or something like that because you know it, as as we've said at the top it's a very broad topic like the artistic output of a of a culture um, could be seen in everything from their jewelry to how they decorate their buildings to their clothes um and then yes to maybe the more modern idea of like private art and stuff that you might have in a domestic setting um i mean in terms of exhibitions i'm thinking in the ancient near east you know there isn't really uh, anything like that like the public coming in to specifically look at a particular art um but you know artists could be yeah could be any of the people making any sort of artistic output you know they could be craftspeople. So I was trying to think at a top level, like getting very fundamental, like when we think about the art of the ancient Near East, like what images comes to mind? Um, Because, you know, today we might think of, oh, what do we think of like Italian art? And people might think of the Renaissance or, you know, I guess we'll get onto classical art later and people go to statues and maybe columns and stuff like that. So, yeah. In what's the general kind of overriding artistic impression of the ancient Near East? And I think I honed in on bricks. I think bricks are pretty important.
0: I love going to a brick exhibit, personally. <laughs> Joking aside, there is, I think it's Beamish, up in the North northeast. North East has a brick exhibition, and it's fascinating. You can sell bricks for a huge amount of money online, you know.
1: Mm, do you remember when Supreme released a brick? The, the like streetwear brand.
0: Oh, is that the white text on red?
1: Yep. Yeah, that's the one.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm hip and cool.
1: If you go down to to Soho, like maybe on a Thursday, there's all these young kids queuing around the block with their parents for like the latest or there was at least for a time for like the latest Supreme drop. And like every week they'd just release a different product with the Supreme logo on it. So it'd be like chopsticks, ski mask. And then, yeah, brick was one of them.
0: I think it's a conspiracy by by big buildings um, where the next drop will be like mortar and then eventually they'll just learn how to build a house. <laughs> this is solving the housing crisis like one supreme product at a time.
1: One brick at a time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean in that in that case, you know, the brick brick was a, a piece of art almost, right? Because I guess you'd only really use it as an ornament. Um mm. But it was a stamped brick, right? And they have those in the Near East. That's what like one of the main ways that you might dedicate a building um is by leaving an impression in the mud before you bake it, um, on one of the bricks that might say, like, you know, so-and-so built this palace. Um, it's dedicated to this particular god. Um, So in a way, Supreme was was drawing on some ancient Near Eastern heritage there.
0: I'm sure that was their goal.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they knew what they were doing.
0: But, you know, I really like that
2: thing where they sort of stamp things in, because we still do that, right? You know, um, near London Bridge, there's a paving stone that says Tate opening 2000 or whatever. I feel like I've maybe already spoken about this on the podcast, weirdly enough. But I really like that. It's like, because it's not just, you know, at the time, it's like making a really physical marker, but like, it's now sort of out of date already because it's this, like, physical object and it's sort of stamped into the ground and you can walk over it and you're like, well, that's out of date. So I really <laughs> like that, that idea that it's, like, they, you know, immediately age. Or when you see, like, a dog's footprints in cement.
1: Aww. Yes, or dinosaurs in the sand.
0: Or tears in the rain.
1: Oh, tears in the rain.
0: <laughs> um, but
1: yeah, I, actually, Saddam Hussein, when he was, um, when he was just kicking it in Iraq. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I need to
1: be. myself. Um... <laughs> he had um he had this sort of vague policy of like neo babylonianism maybe or neo assyrianism where he like presented himself in in some ways or was presented as like a big military like yeah almost like neo assyrian style king and he rebuilt part of the ziggurat of ur which is a big famous brick brick structure and he had stamped bricks laid down with with arabic um inscriptions on them instead of the old cuneiform
0: what a artistic pioneer <laughs> exactly that's, that's how he's remembered, I feel.
1: <laughs> famous, Yeah, famous for his love of art. Yeah. Uh, and nothing else. But no, the re- so the reason why I bring up the brick is because the architecture of the ancient Near East, a lot of these buildings are brick, baked mud brick. And like the Ishtar Gate, I think, is the famous um, reconstructed gate of Babylon, which is in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. And I think that's on the cover of a lot of books about the ancient Near East, with its dragons and lions and all the glazed, the glazed bricks that are sort of, um, dyed blue, the pigment is blue. So I think that's a pretty good like fundament of of the art of the ancient Near East. But again, that's very much not you know public art. The thing that's being displayed it's just sort of part of the architectural aesthetic.
0: It's really interesting to think of art as not something to be consumed by the people. I know that we do have other uses for art than just to enjoy looking at it. So we could, we had we do have a lot of political art today, don't we? Like um, I, th- I would say Banksy is probably quite political art. Um, and then we've also got art movements within the art sphere, like Just Stop Oil, who are quite famous for protesting the use of oil by um, demonstrating at museums, chucking stuff over paintings, for example.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting to consider, like the audience for this art, right? Because if it's not, if it's not the public, who is it? Like if you think of the Ishtar Gate there, for example, the the, the walls of the walls of Babylon, like who's who's the audience for that? And I guess they project a sort of propaganda to you know to the gods or to people who might be arriving at the city, that this is a very powerful city, you know, to enemies maybe if they ever turned up. Um, and yeah, so there are sort of audiences for the art, but it's not just the, the general the general public. Um, and really, ultimately, I think a lot of it just serves the organisation of the state, whether that's the art in a temple, you know, and the audience being the priesthood and the gods, or if it's a palace which is designed to promote the power of the king and make the, the serfs feel small. So then really, you've got to start looking for like private art, you know, if you want to see what people are doing in their homes outside of the realm of like the state.
2: I think the the idea of like the gods as audience is really cool, isn't it? I think, have we spoken before about like, in cathedrals, the people painting them would like get a bit wrong deliberately, because the idea was that the only perfect things can be made, like only God can make truly perfect things. So they would like, you know, misspell something or like get a bit of paint in the wrong place to, to sort of show that it's not. It is imperfect because it hasn't actually been made by God. So I really like that idea. That I think the Greeks were kind of on that as well. The idea that like the ultimate audience for a lot of art and a lot of even like architecture is the like is divine bodies.
0: I like the idea that um, you might have a perfectionist artist who's like, mm, I don't want to do it. Gone. You've got to paint outside the lines. You're not perfect. I know, but this is so close to perfect. Um, I do. I do. Th- find it interesting that um you have we still have a lot of art in a religious context and i presume that that has been true across the ancient world just like it is today zenya i'm going to pass over to you here ancient romans religious art yes no
3: absolutely that is also true in the roman world there's plenty of statuary and dedications in temples Um, and I wonder if we can also count votive offerings as a form of art. So like tiny little figurines, if it's relating to like a body part that you want to pray about, that you're having some issues with, you can dedicate that at the temple, or you can buy little, um, figurines of the, of the deity themselves and dedicate those. So we've got all sorts of fun little renditions of, um, of body parts, tablets and, and deities in both the, um, the kind of magnificent, perfect style that would be in the temple themselves or in these kind of miniature, little bit more rough and ready forms that would be dedicated as offerings instead. Um, But one way, uh, especially in temples or in public places, that the Romans used art very effectively was as a form of propaganda. And there was no one who did propaganda better, arguably, than the very first emperor of Rome, Augustus. So he actually built a whole new forum within uh, within Rome called the Forum of Augustus, of course. And inside it, he had this whole series of programmatic art. So the idea is that you come in. Now, this was a space that would be frequented more by the the Roman elite. It was technically open to the common people, but I think it did tend to be senators. And there was this whole sort of program of statues as you went all the way around the, the forum. Um, especially in the kind of end bit the temple at the end and the whole idea was this would tell a story of why Augustus was like the culmination of Roman history this is this is what Augustus is referring to with all of his art programs and not only were there statues but there were also paintings by some of the most famous painters in the Roman Empire at the time all the way around the top now those haven't survived it's really rare that we get paintings survive from the Roman era for well, obvious reasons, they're made of sort of perishable things. They're much easier to destroy than, say, marble or bronze or other kinds of stone. So we don't have those, but we do know that they existed because there are descriptions of them. And I just think that's amazing, this whole, like, art as storytelling. Flo, you were talking about art in religious context. It's a little bit like sort of in churches, doing all of the stories of from the Bible and painting them.
0: On stained glass.
3: Yeah, exactly. Stained glass as well. So that illiterate people who knew the stories could still like, see those there without having read them.
0: I feel that we're so lucky to be able to access art quite easily these days. And something that crossed my mind when you're talking about, you know, going to see art as a member of the public and that being difficult to access is how much I love the gift shop. <laughs> <laughs> at, at exhibitions I'm always I'm always going to go through the gift shop and I might last time I was at uh, the v museum I picked up a pair of very exciting earrings now I was thinking about jewellery as art and how jewellery might be used as an expression of art in the ancient world does anyone have any fun facts about ancient jewellery? The Greeks definitely have some very ornate jewelry i feel like
2: it maybe raises a wider question of like i do think in the ancient world at least for the greeks that distinction that we have where art is a it's like poetry now poetry and art are sort of seen as often quite like highbrow kind of distinct you know you would buy a poetry book and you would go to an art exhibition that would be your your experience those two things in quite sort of isolated portions but for the ancient greeks at least like art is is the buildings it's the jewelry it's you know statues are a massive part of like the city um everything is sort of art in that sense just as like a lot of their literature a lot of their language was poetry
0: in the future we might see art as like billboards and going to the cinema
2: yeah well i guess we do in a broader sense don't we we think about kind of art and culture in in that broader sense but we still i don't know i still think we kind of we tend to keep it in those little discrete boxes which is is maybe a more modern thing um whereas like yeah i guess like the religious sense art is like you were saying about churches and and like in Greece, it's the temples that have these sort of beautiful sculptures like the friezes, like the the Elgin marbles, the Parthenon frieze, that's in a temple. Um, And so, yeah, the jewellery was like also kind of incredibly ornate and beautiful. But I don't know whether, you know, now you get really, as you say, really beautiful earrings. Would we call that art? I don't know whether they would have called it art in the ancient world. but It's definitely one of the sort of aspects of their material culture that we still have evidence of. And we would say, you know, that's beautiful. I think one episode I spoke about a pair of earrings that have, um, I can't remember who exactly it is, but it's this beautiful figure of a, of a goddess, I think, sort of hanging down from the earring. Um, and, you know, she's got sort of movable parts and, yeah, really, really ornate and, and beautiful.
0: We never change, do we? I think you can still get those in, a, in an Argos catalogue, I'm pretty sure. Jointed figurine earrings. Um, Barney, in the ancient Near East, uh, does, has any jewellery survived through the years or have we got any evidence of jewellery as art?
1: Uh, yeah, there's lots of brilliant jewellery from the ancient Near East. Um, and in fact, it's an interesting area because um, often archaeologists will find jewellery in, in burial contexts um, where part of it has perished. Like, for example, the material that a necklace was strung on, um, but obviously the stones and the metals and stuff that make up the jewellery are still there. So archaeologists historically, I think, have spent a fair amount of time trying to reconstruct jewellery, you know, to see how it would have looked and been arranged. Um, and there's a lot of really brilliant Sumerian jewellery you can see in the British Museum. These are from the the royal graves of Ur, I think, um, and it's like this beautiful gold jewellery. Um, the headdress of the Queen Puabi, which I think I've talked about before, is, is really just incredible. So yeah, it's um, there's a lot of great jewellery, but you can never 100% trust that we've reconstructed it in the way that it might have been worn at the time, um, but yes, especially in terms of elite jewelry, lots of gold. Depending on where you are, you know, either carnelian beads, lapis lazuli, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, lots of jewelry. One thing that I quite like, though, in the, in the days of the sort of colonial explorers of the Middle East, um, when you know people were going out there as, as diplomats or whatever, and you know, going and exploring ancient sites and and buying um, relics on a sort of informal market. There was a particular um, British archaeologist and and politician, explorer of the ancient Near East in that colonial way, called Austin Henry Layard. He collected a number of um, cylinder seals. These are the um, often stone seals that you roll along a clay tablet in order to seal it like a signature. And um, he strung a bunch of these together and made them into this horrendous necklace for his wife. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, what is it with people of old gifting their wives things Stonehenge was a gift for someone's wife wasn't it and she wasn't that interested in it so he donated it to to the people
1: (laughs) yeah it's that sort of um yeah like imperial era like antiquarianism just this desire to like own and commodify and stuff all of these aspects of history instead of studying and dis- well as well as studying but yeah instead of displaying them to the public like we do today but i quite like in, in that regard at least that these things that were very much not jewelry and not part of the artistic tradition of jewelry were turned into jewelry at a later date in in the in the history of these objects lives and um you can see those cylinder seals in the british museum as well actually and that there's a picture of of this person's wife wearing the um wearing the necklace
0: the concept of of taking something that is quite you know precious archaeology and just wearing it as a necklace is so gauche I love it
1: that that was something that was happening into the 20th century as well when Howard Carter discovered Tutankhamun's tomb um he brought out you know some of the gold sort of pectoral decorations which are you know like a big big necklace type thing that goes over your chest and um and he he dressed up um one of the young Egyptian boys who was attending the dig as well, who probably would have been helping out with the manual labour. And there are these photographs of, of this child, this Egyptian child wearing Tutankhamun's jewellery like the, <laughs> a day after it was taken out of the tomb.
3: So um, that's quite a conversation in art today, isn't it? Should art be for everyone? Should everyone be like participating in art by say, wearing expensive jewellery or, or like, you know, sometimes you can do community art. So you get people together and everyone adds a bit. And that that is the art. Um, or should it be something that is um, made for a specific purpose and that should be just looked at uh, and, you know, put on, this is kind of a pun, but not really, put on a pedestal <laughs> um, to be uh, to be respected from afar, to be looked at from afar um, and just kept the way it is because it's perfect the way it is. And, and that's how it was intended to be. And we shouldn't change that at all. Um, I don't know if there's like a clear answer how did the ancients maybe deal with that well I think uh for them it was very much like art was was a one-way thing um you you make the art for other people to see you're not supposed to mess with it and I think actually the only exceptions to that are um graffiti but Also, um, Meg, I'm thinking of when art is messed with and people get upset. I'm thinking of
2: Alcibiades's like destruction of the Herms. Oh, yes. People got very upset. Yeah. Because again, that's like the sacred, right, as well. It's not just so he he, like the Herms are the sort of uh, crossroad guardians and they have uh, erect penises on them. Um, And he got in lots of trouble for messing up the Herms.
0: (laughs) Oh, you're right there, Flo yep sorry
1: did your home just go erect i
0: just got (laughs) flustered yeah it did
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh okay so that's that's another really good point is that they are they're sort of statues they're sort of practical they're sort of religious like it's all just so mixed together for the
0: greeks um
2: yeah it's a really interesting one
0: talking of the british museum and colonialism and stealing stuff that doesn't belong to us naughty meg um I believe that you might have a fact to bring to the table about that's related to that. <laughs> yeah, you, you you're not wrong, Flo. Subtle. It was subtle of me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wonder what it could possibly be. Uh, three guesses. Uh, it begins with air and ends in glen. Um, that was a terrible way of doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is it Jess Glynn? <laughs> Ooh, Jess- close.
2: <laughs> That's a really good guess, Barney. The Jess
1: Glynn marbles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, you're so, you're so close. Uh, Well, yeah, the Elgin marbles um, or the Parthenon frieze. I think people use different terminology for this for obvious reasons because on the one hand, it's really sort of inappropriate and, and maybe even borderline offensive to call them the Elgin marbles because famously, they do not belong to Elgin. But that is the name by which a lot of people know them. The Parthenon frieze is also not quite right because he didn't just nick the frieze from the Parthenon. He also nicked actual sculptures from other bits of the Acropolis. So just to like clarify the terminology, Elgin was a guy in the 19th century british colonial etc um and the marbles in question are partly the frieze so the the sort of sculptures but embedded onto a wall from the parthenon which is the main temple of the acropolis the big one the one in all the pictures on the big hill in athens but he also took so there's the acaryatid a which i actually think are cooler i think like they are the coolest bit they're in this other little temple called the eric which was built to house the statue of athena Um, which is this big statue of Athena which is very kind of important to the Greeks but at the front of the Erechtheion which is this little temple the columns are replaced by women like statues of women who are sort of holding up the temple on their heads and a really fun fact about them is that they have like really ornate hairstyles and you're like oh I wonder why that is what does that signify and it's quite possibly just because they have to be absolutely massive in order to be able to hold up the top of the temple
1: I went to school with a boy called (laughs) Erechtheion really? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, Jake. Sorry, it's a really bad joke. I'm sorry Get to enjoy. out
0: of here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's where we were. Um,
2: anyway, long story short. Um, He Elgin took one of the caryatids, so that is in the British Museum, um, and they've got the actual caryatids now on the Acropolis are replicas, and the other five are in the museum, the Acropolis Museum, right next to the Acropolis, Um, and you can see them and they're all kind of being protected from the atmosphere and everything. But they're really, really beautiful, and they kind of stand looking out. And they're, I think there's some really nice symbolism there. They're kind of holding up the temple. And this mini temple has been built to house another statue. So they're sort of almost guarding it. Um, I think they're really, really beautiful. Anyway, that's the long story short of the Elgin Marbles. Um, I think we should give them back. That's my position. Wow,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's not ours to take. Would you say that they're the pulse of the uh, of the uh, Parthenon, the uh, Caratea... Car- 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 artery if you will <laughs> oh was that worse than barney's be honest
2: no that was better i didn't even know if Barney's inventive. was a joke <laughs>
1: uh, those the best jokes you can't tell
2: <laughs> is that true <laughs> no that's great that's really good flow I enjoyed that a lot thank you
1: of course, of course, Meg. You're, you know, just like Boris Johnson. Uh, which, in many ways, you are. Um, your position oh. on returning the <laughs> your position on returning the Elgin Marbles may may change over the years.
2: I genuinely don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But he flip-flopped, didn't he?
2: He did, yeah, he did. Yeah, I mean, there is there is debate. Like, there's debate about how legal it was in the beginning. Some people say, you know, genuinely he did have permission to take some of them, potentially the ones that... So there have been a lot of damage by earthquakes. Um, So a lot of the sort of, the this freeze, a lot of the things that were attached to the wall had fallen off the wall of the temple and onto the floor. And there's some evidence to suggest that he might have been allowed to take, you know, got permission to take the stuff that was on the floor. But it still wasn't his. And there's a lot of, like, was that even you know, legitimate, and then also probably took bits that weren't on the floor, like the carrier did from the
0: Erectheon. So there's a lot going on. Technically, everything's on the floor, except for (laughs) balloons, (laughs) kites, birds. So technically, who could take it?
1: It's a very playground approach, isn't it? It's like oh, yeah. you dropped this, therefore it is, it is mine <laughs> or it's anyone's.
2: Yeah, finders keepers. Found it on the floor that's at it, this incredibly it. sacred site. That means it's fair <laughs> game. <laughs> of course, it doesn't. Now it's
0: my art.
2: But that is, I mean, that that distinction there, like the art, what we were talking about. But, you know, the, these were. This is like a, such an important site in athens and these were on the walls and it was very much like that must be the closest thing to a sort of art gallery type thing it's a public space that you would go and visit it's still a public space that you can go and visit and that's also you know there were theaters on the same site like that is where you would go and experience the kind of the cultural life and the artistic life of the city um and it's i just think it's really sad like the acropolis museum has this amazing space and it's got a a pedestal an empty plinth waiting for the sixth frietid and it's got the you know all the parthenon frieze ready to go with those gaps ready to be filled in and they you know they've got room for it they've got the museum for it i think we should give them back that's my my passionate
0: speech it is it's empty and waiting waiting for its statues to return i think that's very sweet
1: meg mm. am i right in thinking that there was a part of the athenian agora which had some art in it
2: yeah, so there's the painted stoa, which is like a stoa is a kind of like a walkway, uh, like a colonnade, a covered walkway. And there was a really famous one in the Athenian agora that had paintings on it. Um, and yeah, like a sort of fresco, you know, like war paintings. Um, and this is like fifth century BC. And that etymology, hour,
0: e-tymology hour, hour
2: is where we get the word um, stoicism stoicism because the stoa was where the first sort of teachings of stoicism took place
1: that's brilliant that's a great etymology hour so were they thinking and looking at art and walking around i oh, know walking around is is someone else
2: yeah zeno zeno who was at one of the early stoics sort of taught from the, the this stoa with the paintings in it and that is where we get the word
0: Stout. stoat stoat
2: stoat <laughs> <laughs>
3: I've got a similar sort of thing in the Roman world to that, to the Stoa, that acted like a gallery. This is in Aphrodisias, which is in Turkey, actually. Um, But it was built in the in the Roman times. And um, it's like it's called the Sebasteion, which is actually a Greek word. And Sebaste is like holy. But that's also what they that was their translation of Augustus. Um, as in like revered one. So the Sebasteon is all about the emperors as opposed to gods, as opposed to like honoring or, or the sort of holy gods. Um, and it's treating, because um, treating the emperors as gods was much more common in the ancient Near East, um, as opposed to in like Rome itself. I know I keep talking all the time on the podcast about how the Romans hated kings and they didn't want to like deify their emperors until after their deaths. Um, and there were big issues when emperors tried to deify themselves during their lifetimes. Not such a problem in the ancient Near East. So they built this whole Sebastion. And it's in a public space where, like, the main thoroughfare of um, Aphrodisia. So people would have been going up and down this road all day, every day, all the time. And they would have seen on a two-story building. Like, this whole complex is massive. And they see all the different emperors. Doing um, various things, so um, it, they could be conquering a people. There's quite a famous one actually of Claudius conquering Britannia in the Sebastian. Uh, they could see Nero with Agrippina. Um, that's one of that's a very famous depiction actually because uh, Agrippina is like standing over Nero, um, crowning him. So it's this whole like implication of did people in the provinces actually know um, about Agrippina's influence within the imperial court? Uh, so this is this is a whole like gallery in dedication to the emperors. So this is a statement um, of the loyalty of the people to Aphrodisias to the Roman Empire. Um, once again, art, it feels like the art can be uh, can only be political in the Roman world. And that is often the impression that we kind of get just because there were so many of these messages like loud and clear. Um and also, they're done, as I say, in these um, very durable materials. So, they're also the messages that have come down to us.
0: I'm going to do a rather drastic segue now and talk about my, my experiences, because I like talking about myself, at primary school of uh, ancient art, because the things that we're exposed to at school is something that we're always trying to address on this podcast, because sometimes it's not always accurate. Uh, so, from the Greeks, Meg, I'm going to talk about. Vases and from the Romans, I'm going to talk about mosaics. I've got these vivid memories of sticking down sugar paper into mosaics, uh, which was great fun. Um, and Barney, I'm going to talk about Egyptian uh, tomars. So what you might find in in the pyramids or elsewhere. I'm going to start with you, Meg, because vases captured my imagination hugely. That you could tell a story on a vase and that you had all these characters and things going on. And I kind of wish that we had that on our plates and bowls nowadays. I don't know how practical the vases were or if they were ornamental, but can you imagine getting your cereal in a bowl that tells a story like the entire Lord of the Rings series on your cereal bowls? I think that'd be really cool.
2: That would be so cool. And I do remember as a kid getting those, like the bowls that you get with your cereal and they sent, I actually still have a Toy Story plate which has a scene from Toy Story on it. And it's genuinely a good play. I enjoy it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That is such a sort of uh, an an ancient thing is to have these really ornate, beautiful objects. And they were practical as well. So like the Minoans I've spoken about before, it's like a Bronze Age civilization um, on what's now Crete, but around there. So like island island people, very kind of seafaring. Um, And they have this thing called what we, we now call it the marine style where all of their vases had these beautiful kind of depictions of sea creatures and fish and octopuses or octopi or octopodes or whatever you want to call them. Um, and they're absolutely beautiful. They're some of my favourite bits of ancient art, pottery, any of it. Um, and that that's sort of reflective of their life and how close they were to the sea. And you do get ones with other types of animals like bulls and stuff. And they have these lovely, like Xenia was talking about, votive dedications. They have these lovely poppy goddesses, which is sort of... Um, representations of like female goddesses with uh crowns with like poppy seeds in them um and then in the classical period again you definitely get stories i think we've spoken before about the vases that have scenes from the iliad and the odyssey so you get like um uh, the one with Ajax and Achilles playing a game which we spoke about in the games episode and they're, they're in their armour and they've just come off the battlefield but they're playing a little bit of dice and then there's one where Ajax is carrying the body of Achilles and it's so beautiful, so heartbreaking Achilles is sort of slumped over and you can see his hair falling down to the ground as his head is tipped upside down and then you get um, there's a wine cup which has a really, really beautiful detail painting of a man having a shit <laughs> <laughs>
1: Blimey, that came out of left field.
0: It really did. That uh, that was uh, shocking and stunning and confronting, just like a vase of a man having a having a a, a, a poo.
1: Is, is he actually captioned Blimey? That really came out of left field as he's doing it as well. <laughs>
0: just imagining yeah. a vase with someone pinching off a log and then just displaying it in your home as this amazing ornament. <laughs>
2: I think I mentioned it in the toilets episode because he's like reaching back behind him to wipe with a pebble because you know they use pebbles as, as toilet paper so he's in this squat he's got his arm kind of reaching back uh, it's, it's amazing it's, it's genuinely the art the art involved in that is... but then I was thinking we do you do get crude art now don't you like um, bodily bodily art like representations of naked bodies and you get those candles that are like boobs and so we've you know maybe we're, we're kind of coming back around to the naked
1: I mean maybe, maybe it's just a precursor to um Marcel Duchamp's uh, mm. fountain as well
0: urinal that's yeah. true yeah that's such a good point yeah maybe I should Tailleur.
1: go and do a poo in that
0: <laughs> maybe that would be art maybe <laughs> <laughs> You should go for it, Barney. We support
2: you. <laughs> in your... I like how Barney said that as if, like as if we've been talking about where you should do a poo. You're like, maybe I should do a poo in that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh right, no!
1: Here comes another just stop oil protester. He's going to poo <laughs> in the arena. I'm not actually.
0: <laughs> but you can find our podcast <laughs> at again good school. Um. So Vaz is obviously fantastic. Um examples of art um something for me um that that really was roman art that the only art that i could think of when i was at primary school was mosaics now i don't really know if this is a public or private thing uh, mosaics um i'm presuming they're little offcuts of tile or something that you arrange it so you arrange them in a nice pattern or you know twirling dna strand-esque borders with probably some a cornucopia with the uh, grapes falling out of it and a goat and a fish and things like exciting pictures that you might want to have on your floor or on your walls um senia mosaics were they sort of private or were they public public things
3: so yeah mosaics we used for private entertainment in the sense that uh dinner time was private entertainment basically in the roman world so that's where they'd have their f- most fun mosaics and there are a few different themes that come out with the mosaics that have been uncovered so um one theme which of course as so many other things with the romans was copied from the greeks is the unswept floor mosaic there's a particularly beautiful one from the aventine hill in rome that's now in the vatican museum and it's it's like a joke kind of mosaic so the idea is that the, the mosaic on the floor has got like bits of food debris on it as though the, the diners have like been chucking their half eaten fish and half eaten figs and like half stuffed dormice on the floor um, as they've been eating and no one's actually tidied it away. So the floor is constantly a mess because that's how it's been designed, which I think is quite clever and also quite handy because it means you don't need to ever clear up your dining room floor. But another theme that's quite prominent is one that's referred to as memento mori, which means um, remember that you are mortal, um, remember that death is inevitable, that that kind of translation, uh, or remember that you will die. So often there'll be like skulls on the dining room floor, or skeletons. And yeah, that's a reminder, sort of the message of eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of thing. So make the most of life while you can, make the most of this delicious food, because you never know, you might die tomorrow. Which is always a fun thing to remember at dinner.
0: It's cheerful. That's what I like to think about when I'm having pizza, is that I could die any minute. You could have an aneurysm on the toilet, you never know. So, so mosaics and vases we've covered off. Now, Barney, tomb art. This is something huge uh, in my primary school, that we did like a theatre PE exercise, where we had to pretend that we were seeing Tutankhamun's tomb for the first time, which is kind of weird now I think about it because the PE lesson started with uh, imagine that you're hatching from an egg. But anyway, so there was this touring theatre group and we were made to like pretend that we were discovering the tomb and I had this vivid imagination that, that everything was golden and glorious and shiny and uh, I want to know how true that was and what tomb art was actually like, Barney.
1: Right, well, yes. I was trying to think of, yeah, are there any more, like, individual forms of art where people might be able to like commission something or you know have it you know for a single person to appreciate rather than you know a bit of state propaganda or some religious art or something like that and i thought maybe that the tombs of private individuals is a good place to look because um in certain periods and places in ancient egypt you know tombs would be decorated by by the tomb owner not all tombs are decorated and uh lot of the pyramids aren't for example the um the great pyramid isn't isn't decorated on the inside for example some are just decorated with texts but um there are other really brilliant examples like these they're called mastabas um which is like a flat tomb um it means bench in arabic um and these these mastabas at the site of saqqara which is one of the big necropolises um, of ancient egypt which is necropolis of memphis which was the old capital um the tomb art there is really really brilliant and you can if you visit the site you can walk around these old master tombs and see how they decorated the walls and so a a private individual you know a member of the pharaoh's court or something like that might choose to decorate the walls with scenes of daily life hunting fishing collecting taxes you know lots of highly dynamic stuff and the idea being that um These were part of like provisioning the the person in the afterlife as well. So to show that kind of natural abundance, this kind of cornucopia of cattle and fish to catch and wheat to harvest and stuff like that, so that they would be provided for these things in the afterlife. They're very much like trying to represent reality um, in in a sort of artistic way. And I don't think you would be able to access somebody's tomb and just walk around and look at it as art like we do today. But I just, yeah, I like the idea of like decorated walls there with this highly, like, representational art that shows a little slice of Egyptian reality in the same way that, like, you know, photography might do nowadays, although it's a completely different context. um, There's certainly an artistic edge to it.
0: That's a lot of historical value as well, isn't it? If you're depicting daily life, that's really useful to archaeologists to go, ah, interesting, this is how people lived.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's some some scenes that I've talked about before from another site in Egypt um, called Beni Hassan, uh, these are the tombs of some more elite officials. I went to and, school um, with a
0: guy called Benny Hassan.
1: Well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. And, um, and I think I mentioned it in one of our sports episodes or Olympics or something like that. They show scenes of wrestling, um, for example, um, you know, athletic prowess and stuff like that. And, yeah, it's um, you'd put whatever on your tomb walls, really, as long as you wanted it to be there and sort of constantly going on in the afterlife or showing you as sort of you know accomplished in some way
2: can i just jump in on that thing about like the idea that those give us a sort of uh, an insight into like everyday life do you guys like the flip side of that do you know um like ekphrasis
1: not personally
2: don't say you went to school with a guy called ekphrasis yeah
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um it's like in 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 a text there's this literary device called ekphrasis where they sort of zoom in like in a literary sense on an object or often on a piece of art and this happens quite a lot in ancient literature like in in Greek and Latin literature they'll suddenly you know Homer does it with Achilles shield which has this beautiful artistic depiction of a city at, at war and a city at peace and the text spends ages kind of telling you about the art so it's like almost the reverse of that it's like it's a lot of our evidence for art that we don't have the physical evidence for comes from these really really detailed narrative descriptions of art in literature so I think that's a really funny kind of reverse thing there to those vases that I was talking about where you get like scenes from the Iliad or the Odyssey in the art and then you also get scenes about art in the texts I
0: don't know I just that really that reminded me of that I think it's really cool.
1: Artception. yeah
0: I think I might bring our artistic endeavours to a close. I know I mentioned Banksy earlier, and actually uh, that would have brought us onto a topic of graffiti. But I think that's such a rich topic that we could probably do an entire episode slash season slash podcast on that. So I think we might save that tasty nugget for another time. Um, But I'm going to round up today's episode by talking about everyone's favourite (laughs) artefact. arty fact uh, from the ancient world I'm going to start with you Xenia what was your favourite arty thing uh, that you've learned about today?
3: My favourite thing was Meg's beautiful everyday objects with the lovely paintings on them Um, I wish I could have some of those in my house but between me my husband and my cat were too good at smashing things (laughs) accidentally I'll add Um, but yeah I think I think those were really really wonderful and I envy envy the Greeks for having such beautiful everyday
0: objects. Me too. Me too. Um, Meg, how about you? What was your favourite arty thing you learned about?
2: There have literally been so many. I'm not sure I can narrow it down. I think what I've really loved, and if I'm allowed to have a broader thing, is like our discussion of this idea of kind of public versus private. I really like Barney's point about the bricks and how bricks could be art and what we were talking about with Xenia and like the mosaics and that private, you know, slash public distinction. Um Sorry, I've stolen loads of things there, but I just can't narrow it down.
0: Like the British Museum, you've stolen loads of things. Oh! Oh! Yes! <laughs> well, you can have them all, uh, as long as it's on the ground. Um, Barney, what was your favourite thing that you've learned about today?
1: Well, I can maybe counterbalance Meg's broader broader favourite things there by doing a very specific one. Poovars.
0: Oh, you fiend! <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you want poo bars? I
0: want I, uh, I never thought I'd say this phrase but I wanted poo vars. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah well,
1: today poo bars is mine
0: <laughs> well okay right you can have poo bars, in which case I'm going to have a floor mosaic that looks like a mess because I think I would benefit from that uh, because I'm incapable yeah. of eating anything without getting it on myself or the floor so I think that would be really useful Uh, And that has been the end of our uh, That's Entertainment trilogy. You can join us next time for another fantastic episode of Against the Law. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can always choose to support us on Patreon. We've got all sorts of tiers for every budget, starting from just
3: £3 a month. Benefits include getting each episode a day early,
2: stickers and your name in cuneiform. You can find us on Twitter at Against Law and you can also find us on TikTok at Against the Law Podcast.
1: We're also always happy to hear suggestions, questions about the podcast and other requests if you want to email us. Our email is againstthelawpodcast at gmail.com.